This is the Windswept and Interesting podcast, and I'm Richard Baines. One of my favourite subjects to write and broadcast about over the past few years has been Scotland's beavers. I must have written dozens of articles and made quite a few radio tapes on the subject. For many people, the story of Scotland's beavers begins here at the Banff Estate in the hills above Ailith, west of Blair Gowrie. The estate owners, Paul and Louise Ramsey, were keen to see beavers restored to a country where they were once native, and they brought a pair to an enclosure on the estate. Since then, a vast area of Banff has been transformed into what seems like a beaver theme park, with strings of ponds held back by their dams, big wetlands and lots of trees chewed off to an hourglass shape, just like in the cartoons. Scotland's beavers have gone on to become a rewilding success, with them being declared a protected species in 2019. But there's still controversy over damage they cause and over whether they should be shot when they do it. Now, Paul and Louise Ramsey's daughter, Sophie, is trying her hand at rewilding on the estate, and I'm here to talk to her. If you like this chat, by the way, you can subscribe to the podcast, and I'd love to hear your views on it and suggestions for future episodes. Have a look for my handle, at Scott Nature Corps, on Twitter, and send me a note. Sophie describes herself on social media as a singing, rewilding, writing toddler mum. And she's made a name for herself as a folky. That's a bit of her now. But I'm here to talk to her about the estate. So she's going to start by telling me about the history of Banff. My family has been here since 1232, and so the history is pretty long. Um, <laughs> the land was given to my ancestor in that year. There's a, there's a legend about a white snake at the Reeky Lynn waterfall in a cave, which gave an ancestor who was training to be a doctor at the time the, the gift of X-ray vision, and he was able to cure the King Alexander II. So says the myth. And that resulted in... And that resulted in Banff being given to him. So it's a good myth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. It's a good myth. Um, so more recently, Banff House has become quite well known as uh, a rewilding sort of place, starting, I think, maybe 15, 20 years ago with your parents, Paul and Louise, introducing beavers here. Tell me about that. Yeah, so, I mean, my dad had been interested in conservation for much longer and he did an MSc as a young man in his early 20s. And when he took over Banff, that was in 1980. And he had um, a desire to do good for nature. But yes, it was 20 years ago, 2002, when he brought beavers and that was the, that was the most kind of iconic and memorable action that he took. So tell me about that. Tell me about him bringing beavers here. How did that happen? How did that come about? Uh, it's a long story and um, I, I can't tell everything, but he got really interested in the idea of beaver introduction in the 90s. He went to some meetings involving various people in the conservation world in Scotland. And I think it was because the Habitats Directive, the European Habitats Directive, suggested that beavers should be reintroduced to places um, where they had formerly been native, particularly because I think because they were a keystone species and they have such an incredible impact on the surrounding biodiversity. And I think he thought it was all going to happen quite quickly 
via the government. And so actually his scheme was really to, to be a kind of demonstration project. So we had these beavers which came, the first two from Norway and latterly they came from Bavaria. And he wanted to show, you know, what beavers did and what they would do in this kind of land, um, in this context. Yeah. So four beavers? Uh, initially we had a pair and then we had three from Bavaria and actually the original pair both died. I think they'd had quite a long time in quarantine, perhaps weren't in perfect condition. And we had two more came, I think, if I recall correctly. They were yeah. the founding the founding forefathers yeah. or foremothers of the, yeah. of the of the Banff beaver population. Yeah. How many yeah. beavers are here now? Well, we kind of we there are two two definite families and possibly a third. And there there's one family that we see a lot of and everybody sees quite a lot of and they're the kind of the the known beavers and then we have some more discreet beavers in so other got, parts. You've got of the show-off beavers. And yeah. The beavers. yeah, yeah, yeah. You get that in any neighbourhood, really. Don't yeah, you? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, they've had a huge impact on the landscape here. Tell me about that. They have. So, um, I mean, Banff, like lots of uh, farms, a lot of drainage, agricultural drainage, was done in the 18th and 19th century, and there was a network of kind of straightened, narrow ditches that were designed to kind of remove water from the land. And the beavers came along and they made dam after dam after dam after dam. And so in doing so, they created these wonderful nature-rich pools and they, they re-naturalized the watercourse. And as a result of that, we saw a kind of explosion of nature in the surrounding area. We saw the kind of re-wetting of the land and in, in the last 20 years, we've had a relationship with Stirling University Biology Department. So a lot of the impacts that they've made have been quite well um, studied and understood, including hydrology, the capacity for the land to hold more water for things like flood mitigation downstream, and also um, wetland plants, invertebrates. One um, PhD showed that we had three times the number of wetland plant species than you would expect in an equivalent pond without a beaver. So there's a beaver effect. Apart from them just building the ponds, they're doing something else. Do we yeah. know what that is? Is it beaver poo? <laughs> We're, they're maintaining wetland. So rather than the water just draining off um, or you know the water, or the wet bits drying out in the summer, they hold the water table steady. So in times of drought, we still have these wonderful pools um, with water in and in times of flood it, they they complexify the kind of water drainage situation so that there's much more surface area which means that they slow the flow of water downstream so they're also reducing peak flow and therefore flooding. So I've had a look at the ponds a few years ago in fact and there, there's a, a huge string of ponds, there's a long string of ponds yeah. with, with dams three or four feet high. It, it, it's, a, it, it's a very complex environment that they've created yeah it is yeah exactly and i mean for example they create going back to the question of biodiversity they create a lot of um, deadwood uh, woody debris in the water which is you know home to multiple invertebrates which is then food for fish and amphibians and birds and you know they the dams are wonderful kind of constructions of wood and mud and all sorts of things and they create standing deadwood which is brilliant for things like woodpeckers and obviously invertebrates and keeping the ground wet 
year round is is really good for the mycorrhizal um, network. So um, that's the fungi. That's the, the exactly. That's the the world wide web of fungi, which then contributes to the health of all the surrounding plants. So they're so they're a really good thing. Are there any disadvantages to having them on the ground? Because they must make flood your road, or they must flood fields that you have animals in. Are there any disadvantages? Well, for us, we've we've felt very few. And, and of course, that is partly because of our mentality. From time to time, yes, bits of fields, edges of fields can get flooded. I mean, it really depends partly on the topography. Here we have a lot of kind of glacial moraine. We're just at the foothills. We don't have a lot of kind of very flat, low ground, which potentially could flood a bit further out. For us, I think the cost-benefit analysis of trying to farm marginal farmland which is liable to be wet is actually not very good and so losing a bit more land to farming but then gaining all of these other ecosystem services for us it's a kind of a no-brainer but it's also because we are passionate about nature and we and its recovery and um, we recognize that the huge value in that. Slightly delicate subject Um, of the original beavers, I understood that some of them escaped and formed part of the now wild population. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, we we can't prove one way or the other, to be honest, because beavers were seen um, in the Tay catchment in 2001 before we had beavers here. And um, so, it, I mean, our beavers are not contained anymore, and that's well known. And so, obviously, there will have been dispersal in those years, but um, we weren't the initial cause. They, they, they escaped, basically. You can't really contain beavers for a, an indefinite amount of time. And when we started the project, we didn't expect to have to because we expected that the government was about to do reintroduction and then it was sort of delayed, yeah. And they've gone on to be quite controversial, but... Um, they now have the government seal of approval. They're, they're effectively uh, regarded as a, a now native species again. How does the family feel about that? Yeah, I mean, obviously that was a great moment when they received official protection. It's not all over, though, because a large number of licences to shoot them were given out and um, that has resulted in a, a quite vast number of deaths, <laughs> and which, you know is problematic. For example, from the point of view of genetics, you don't want to um, have a kind of genetic bottleneck by having too few. And um, translocation needs to be made much more easy. And also mitigation, and also um, enabling farmers and land managers to accommodate beavers, which really is the first, you know, um, in the hierarchy of response, it should be accommodate, mitigate, translocate. and. There's a big discussion about translocation, which I think is really important, but I think it's also important to consider what it would take to enable people to accommodate and mitigate, even if that is sometimes, you know, payment for ecosystem services or that kind of thing. An incentive to landowners to to host beavers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine if you offered a a farmer a few hundred quid a year or a a grand a year to say you've got a, a beaver family on your land, it would make it could make the difference between them saying I don't like them here, I want them out, and saying well I can live with it. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and also I mean there are a number of tried and tested mitigation techniques like flow devices. You can put kind of pipes through dams so that so that 
essentially they're just not holding as much water back at once and, and that can mitigate flooding. The gloriously named beaver deceiver. The beaver deceiver, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, obviously the thing about beavers is that they are native to Europe and North America. Obviously, you know, two different species, but very similar behaviour. And so it's not as though there hasn't been an enormous opportunity to study them and to mitigate their impacts. So we know how to do that, and we've learned how to do that in Europe, and we know how to do that in North America. So we should be able to deal with it. Yeah. You're listening to the Windswept and Interesting podcast. How did Sophie Ramsey advertise to Ospreys to get them to come to the estate? Stay listening to find out. We'll be back in one minute. Right, we better leave beavers behind because I think we could talk about that for quite <laughs> yeah. a long time. Yeah. It's one of my one of my favourite subjects. But here at, at, at Banff, there is more to it than just beavers. So tell me uh, what, what's been happening over the past few past decades with your parents and then what you're doing now. Well, four years ago, I came back to kind of help take over. Um, and my parents were already thinking about doing a rewilding project. And I was really excited by that. And we were all kind of aligned and we talked to um, the farmers who we work with. They, they do the farming on Banff. And they got really interested in it too, which was brilliant. So we've, had, we've been able to work really closely with the farmers who are our next-door neighbours. They have the next-door neighbour farm. And we agreed that we should take 180 hectares out of the farm. I mean, well, 13 fields within that area. There are also woods. That's and about 450 acres. 450 acres it is, exactly. I'm good at that, aren't I? Nice. <laughs> that was impressive. Yes. And, um, yeah. And so we had, sorry, we had a fallow year. We had a fallow year, which was 2021. And then in 2022, we began um, introducing a very low density of stock. So we currently have 18 sort of free-ranging cattle and four pigs. Right. And they, they roam, roam all over the estate, or...? All of, over this 450-acre uh, area. Acre. How yeah. big is the estate, by the way? Uh, it's 1,300 acres. It's about a third. Yeah, yeah. And then um, we also have done a woodland creation scheme on the hills. That was also... We also took the sheep off. There was some kind of... There was some sort of rough grazing up there before. So what else is there going on in the rewilding project? Is there anything else? We're using the term catalyzed rewilding because where we can, we're trying to kind of just tweak things a bit so we've done um, a certain amount of yellow rattle sowing and small copses of um, native species particularly ones that we feel we lack um, so that the seed source won't be there. Vamp has got you know a very classic kind of history of um, having had um, 18th century planned landscape followed by kind of 19th century exotic trees and 20th century um, commercial woodland and so we're working with kind of a starting point that is not not pristine in terms of kind of nativeness. So you're so, cursing the ancestors <laughs> a, a little bit. Well, no, we just we just have to kind of work out how to collaborate with it. But yeah, you've got. I noticed you've got rhododendron ponticum on the driveway. That's a pain, isn't it? It is a pain. We've done a massive amount of rhododendron clearance, but there's always more when it comes back. So you have to keep at it. Yeah, yeah. Do you think you'll be able to get rid of it completely? Um, if you do keep at it, you do eventually win. Um, in fact, we had a lot of other places and we had um, 
volunteers come and and saw it down for years and years and years and and actually because suddenly there's all this sunlight coming you get an abundance of other things coming up quite fast like foxgloves and and birch and and so on um and once that comes in the rhododendron is not as interested anymore <laughs> you managed to drive it out yeah. it's, a, it's a very very pervasive invasive insistent sort of thing isn't it and it it's is. always depressed people love the purple flowers when they see them until you point out that it's a that it's a bit of a killer yeah yeah, yeah. So, so quite a worry so um i think if i remember rightly there was a crowdfunder to help you with the rewilding scheme that's how, right how, tell me about that and how all that went yeah i mean well the biggest cost that we had was the perimeter fence um and because we wanted to do this natural grazing regime we knew that we had to have proper stock fence around the edge and i don't know if you've ever um, paid for fencing in recent years but it's it's um yeah it's not cheap so that was one of them that was the main purpose but we um raised money for a few other things as well like osprey platforms and a few um sort of targeted bird and bat boxes and bee boxes and yeah and then we also got a small nature restoration fund grant to do this yellow rattle and to do some ponds and scrapes which we did as well yellow rattle yeah what's that so yellow rattle um is a kind of miracle um plant because it parasitizes on the roots of grass and where you have um for former um, improved pasture and you want to kind of undermine and reduce the dominance of this sward in order to just increase the number of species um you can sow yellow rattle and you can actually we discovered latterly you can sow it literally just chuck it straight on the grass and it just kind of reduces the, the grass so not what i want in my lawn at home <laughs> it depends whether you want to turn your lawn into a wildflower meadow would that do it would yeah that do it? Ah, yeah right, okay. so then quite what you can then do is go back later and over sow with an, with more species because the grass is not going to totally dominate interesting stuff yeah you mentioned an osprey platform there. Have you got ospreys? Um, so we haven't yet. We only put them up after the last season, and I think they're arriving around now, so we'll see. But we did have some prospectors come and look at both. Was that last but year? or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think sometimes, yeah, they sort of check, check places out. Are, um, are there ospreys in the sort of wider area? Yeah, there are, yeah. And there's Lintraith and Loch just to the sort of northeast of here, which is... Um, quite a hot spot. They need to be able to go and fish somewhere, but they can they can fly quite a long way for their lunch. So, 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 so how how do you advertise to get ospreys here? Do you have yeah, to exactly. a, a sign up saying for, you know, to, to let good, good osprey tenants wanted. Yeah, exactly. That's what we wrote on the bottom of the platform, so they can just see it when they look down. <laughs> I think you're pulling. And <laughs> yeah. um, so. Anything else? What, what else are you doing rewilding-wise? What, what else is going on here? Um, yes, well, so we also, I have completely omitted to say that we are also doing, we've got another Nature Restoration Fund grant to develop a much larger project which, which encompasses two subcatchments, which for which Banff is a kind of modest watershed. Um, and these are not on our land. I mean, they are partly on our land, but they go off into many, many other land holdings. So we've, at the moment... Um, got nine other land holdings that we're talking to and we're doing a kind of scoping project we've got a development grant from the nature restoration fund and what that enables us to do is a combination of 
surveys and consultation. So um, we're doing this consultation work with the managers and owners of nine other land holdings within these two subcatchments either side of Banff and we're having all of the waterways surveyed and it's called the project is called Braze of Aleth Wild Cores and Corridors because what we're trying to do is connect local kind of biodiversity rich areas which we're calling cores via nature rich corridors restored along waterways and so we're thinking about riparian restoration and waterway restoration riparian riverbank riverbank yep yeah not completely exclusively, but those are the, that, that's the kind of main thrust of the project. Thinking about how we can achieve things like natural flood prevention. The town below us, Aylith, is highly vulnerable to flooding. And the, one of these two subcatchments is the, the catchment of the Aylith burn, which is the burn that comes straight into Aylith. In 2017, 100 houses were flooded out. It and the whole, right of the, center, of the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the whole of the centre of town, I mean, all of the shops were ruined. So um, that's quite major in itself, the possibility of allowing these historically straightened agricultural drainage ditches to be kind of regraded so that they can access their natural floodplains, which would mean that much more water would be stopped before it got there. And then um, on the other side, we have an, an eastern catchment, which is the Okhrani burn, and that's an old spawning ground for salmon, And but in recent years, less and less have, has been seen. So thinking about ways that that can be restored revitalized right okay so there's a lot going on there can you tell me anything about the, how much money is involved in that um so our initial grant is for forty thousand, which mostly pays for um consultation surveys and project management and then were we to go through to the next round the minimum ask is a quarter of a million Having perhaps been in the past less than popular with some other local landowners because of the beaver uh, thing, um, you've got other local landowners on board and, and working with you. How's that happened? I think with our immediate neighbours, it's never really been an issue. Yeah, it's much more. I think the main issue with beavers is the is the low ground, which is down the, in Strathmore, uh, and um, well, that that's another matter. Hopefully, it's it's not a personal matter though. It's a it's um. It's a kind of a cultural difference. But you've certainly got the landowners on board up here. Yeah, well, I mean, we've got them on board to the point of uh, consulting with them and um, figuring out what can be done. But I think, you know, more and more people are understanding that, that it's a win-win situation. Um, you know, nature restoration has to be done. And, and also that our project is really focused on nature corridors. So we're not asking people to give up kind of massive swathes of land um, from their farming practice, we're asking them to to do something which can work alongside the farming that they're doing. And quite often, it can also be quite helpful. You can create shelter belts. You know, um, there's going to be in the future lots more obligations put on farmers to do this stuff anyway. And so, you know, we're kind of we're kind of in a pioneering zone. But we, I think, everybody sees which way the wind is blowing at this point. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. Yeah, <laughs> thank you so much. Great to meet Thanks for listening. And remember, you can review, subscribe or send me suggestions. My Twitter handle is at Scott Nature Corps.